And so I'm going to preach on chapters 38 to 50 in Genesis. So, warning, bad sermon, right? Um, But, so you may have to listen, listen a little fast here at the beginning, but we survived last service, so maybe we will this one. So, but let's just set the timer thing so I know where I am. Okay. Um, So the chapters 38 to 50 in Genesis are generally known as the story about Joseph. Okay? Um, It's actually the longest narrative section in Genesis is about him. Now, it's not about Abraham or Isaac or or Jacob. It's about Joseph. Um, And so what I want to do is I want to kind of take you through the story in a few episodes so that people who haven't read it— can know what we're, what we're doing. But I really want to, what I really want to do is, is give you some interpretive hooks so that when you read it later, which you should do if you haven't, or even if you have, it's great. It's great stuff. Um, it's, you know, fencing, fighting, true love, giants, you know. So, so that some of the stuff will help you interpret the passage and see more that's in it, okay? That's what I want to do. And then I want to point out some stuff about the gospel, okay? So the first, it starts out with Joseph. Now, Joseph is the youngest of 11 brothers— and he's the only son of Jacob's favorite wife. So Jacob has four wives, two proper wives and two concubine wives, from which he has mo- more than 11 children, but 11 sons. Joseph is the youngest, and he is the son of Rachel, who is the one he's been in love with since the very beginning, right? And so um, there's a bunch of things not to like about Joseph. I mean, this is kind of what the, the moral of the first part of the story is, that the, his brothers hate him, okay? So you may have heard that he had a, like a fancy multicolored coat, which could also be translated very ornamented coat. But the reason why he has the coat is because he is Jacob's favorite wife's son. He is the favorite, and so he's got this, you know, this one beautiful little coat he gets to wear that his dad, daddy gave him. And so then he goes out into the fields and his brothers are all shepherds. And he goes back and he tells his daddy they're not doing a very good job. And they just, just hate him. Just. Now, I'm, I'm a little brother and I don't have a younger sibling. So I've only experienced this vicariously through my brother. But some of you know this firsthand, what this feels like. Okay, so he's an he's a annoying little brother. He's the favorite. He has this little, like, coat that makes him look all sweet, right? He's a tattletale. And then he has these two dreams, which basically what the dreams clearly mean is that all of his family is going to bow down to him as king. They're all going to bow to him. Father, mother, all his older brothers, they're all going to bow down to him. He's just like, I had this dream. Isn't that a wonderful dream? And they're like, no, that's a terrible dream. You're an idiot, right? (laughs) And so what do you do with a little brother like that, right? What do you do? Well, obviously— you kill him, right? Obviously. So they throw him in this cistern without water in it to decide what to do with him. And they go and have lunch to figure out how they're going to kill him. And while they're having lunch, these traders trading down in Egypt are going by. And they're like, and, and, and so Judah, one of the brothers, has this bright idea. He goes, listen, let's just sell him. You know, he is our brother. Killing him might be an overreaction. So let's just sell him to the Ishmaelite traders. He'll be a slave in Egypt. We'll never hear from him again. We'll get some money. We'll take his little coat and poke teeth holes in it and put some lamb's blood on it and give it to, to, to Jacob and say, hey, we just found this on the plains, you know. Doesn't look good. Right? And so that's what they do. So they sell him into slavery. Off he goes down to Egypt, and they give the bloody coat to Jacob and says, I think this belonged to your son. I think he's probably dead. And that's episode one, right? That's really nice. Now, the funny thing about this is that then the story about Joseph just stops in chapter 38. And there's a story for about a chapter about one of the ten brothers, a brother named Judah. He's the youngest brother from Leah, the other proper wife whose name means cow. She wasn't necessarily the favorite of the wives. But anyway— So Judah, it just says he just leaves his family and he goes somewhere else and lives with some guy. And he meets a woman and he marries her and he has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And the time— Okay, where am I? Okay, yeah. So the time um, comes where it's time for Ur to get married. And so Judah goes out and he finds a, uh, a wife and it's this woman named Tamar, right? And so Tamar marries Ur and um, Ur is apparently a fairly terrible man and husband because all it says about Ur is Ur was wicked in the eyes of the Lord and God put him to death. 
That's it. So, you know, we're talking about a guy who's the son of a guy who sold his own brother into a slave trade. And God didn't strike him dead. So I don't know what Ur was into, but, you know, anyway. So, um, so the way it worked then was, because there's no social safety net in the ancient world, right? Um, this, your social safety net was your family. And so if you're a woman and your husband dies— um, most guys aren't looking to marry a widow. They're looking to marry a younger woman and whatever. And so what happens to this widow? She goes and lives in her father's house. She's only taken care of to the age of her father, right? So there was a practice called leveret marriage, which meant that a, if, if a man died, his brother was responsible to take his brother's wife as sort of another wife, and have children for his name so that the inheritance of his land and his goods and his belongings would stay in the family, would belong to the wife, and would ultimately go on to his children and to his, so his family line would continue. What that meant was all the work you put into that, you didn't get anything out of. The children weren't, weren't counted as yours. The land, you didn't get anything. So, so Onan is in the situation where He's supposed to have these children. And what the text tells us is that—and I'm going to put this as delicately as possible, because some of these biblical stories are, are a little touchy, but um, there are children here, so I'll try to put this as delicately as I can. So Onan essentially engages in leveret marriage in such a way as to get all the pleasure, but not experience any of the responsibility. He takes—he uses Tamar for pleasure, but he doesn't—he makes sure no children are produced, so she's not going to be taken care of that way. And so Ur's land and money and, will ultimately become his. And so the text just says about that, and so God struck him dead. Apparently he take, takes the welfare of women fairly seriously. And so um, Tamar—or um, Judah's kind of stuck here because, you know, it's really his job to give him sh- Shelah too, right? But he's kind of like, this woman is a widowmaker. Oh my gosh, right? So he tells, he tells Tamar, he's like, listen, sweetie, um, Shilah's a little young, so just go back and live with your dad for a while. And when he's old enough, you know, I'll give him to you as a husband and, 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 and we'll, I guess we'll go from there. And so Tamar accepts this because she can't do anything else. And so what happens is Shilah grows up and Judah never broaches the topic. And she notices that Shelah is plenty old enough to be married, and he, Judah's not moving on this. About that same time, Judah's wife dies. And so Judah's kind of in mourning, and um, he's going out of town to shear sheep. And usually when men engage in indiscretions, it's, you know, when they're away from home and after their wife dies, I guess. And so um, Tamar says, okay, this is a perfect opportunity. So she actually, she dresses up as a prostitute, which— it's different in the, in the ancient world, prostitutes put clothes on. Because you might be like, is she going to know? Yeah, but they didn't dress like Vegas, okay? They put veils on and stuff like that so that you, they couldn't be identified, okay? So she, she dresses up like a prostitute, but it conceals her identity. And she places herself on the way where she knows Jacob's going to shear sheep. And so, you know, he's the one who picked the wife for his son, She's probably his type. So he shows up, and he's, and he's like, hey, how about we do—how about we exchange goods and services? And so she says, okay. And so they agree on a price, which is like a goat, but he doesn't have one right there. So she says, well, just give me your staff and your seal and your family emblem, and then when you send the goat, I'll trade back. And he goes, okay, fine. So they do their thing, and he leaves his staff, and then he sends the goat, but she's not there. She's gone. And they're like—he's like, where'd that prostitute go that was up there? They're like, there's not a prostitute that was there. He's like— Okay, we should probably just shut up about this then. How about that? And so they just decide to say nothing. But then a few months go by, and all of a sudden Tamar, who's supposed to be this widow, turns out she's pregnant. And so Judah's caring and loving response to that is, let's drag her out and burn her alive. She's a, she's a W-H-O-R-E, right? And so he, they, they get ready to do this, and there's this really—the the, the Bible is so funny. I mean, it's just— it's just very cheeky. Um, and so this is what Tamar does when she's getting dragged out to be burned alive. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Oh. And it says, um, Jacob recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I because I wouldn't give her my son Shelah. And then it says, and then he didn't sleep with her again. And then that story just—well, and then she has twins. Perez is the older one, and then that story just stops. And it's back to Joseph! Woo! So Joseph's in Egypt, 
and he's a slave, right? And so the next thing that happens is that he gets sold into Potiphar's house, and Potiphar is like the captain of Pharaoh's guard. He's like part of the joint chiefs, right? And he gets sold in there, and it says that while he was a slave—now you're going to have to put this in your sovereignty pipe and smoke it, okay? He says, while Joseph was a slave, the Lord was with him, and the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Now you're going to have to deal with that about how God's will gets worked out. He's a slave— God was with him and blessing him. Apparently, it's possible for God to be attentive, caring, loving, showing his kindness to us, blessing us, causing us to walk out his will in the midst of something as profoundly dehumanizing as being enslaved. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're going through. You don't really totally know what I'm going through. But here's something we can talk about, right? Um, But one of the things it also says about Joseph, besides that he was blessed, was that he was very handsome. And so Potiphar's wife decided that since he was in charge of everything in the household, he probably ought to take charge of her. And so she came to him and sort of, you know, tried to get him to do that. And I'm just—I'm trying to be discreet. I'm sorry if it sounds crass. Um, And so he says, no one is—this is Joseph's response. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against Potiphar? That's not what it says, is it? Right? How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? The God that nobody in Egypt believes in or cares about. And so you can see this kind of in Joseph's life kind of early on. I mean, he's already—he's that guy. He's like, I'm not going to do this. I can't sin against God, even if I am a slave. Right? So— um, Potiphar's wife isn't as understanding as you might hope. Um, so he, he turns her down as much as he can. Then one day he's in the house because that's kind of his job. And she runs up and grabs him by the, by the coat. And he's like, she's like, come to whatever, right? And he goes, no. And he tries to get away, but she's got to hold him. So he like wiggles out of his coat and runs off, right? And so um, Potiphar's wife takes the coat and goes to her husband and says, look, this Hebrew slave you bought, he came to make sport of me, right? So I mean, clearly the moralist right here is Joseph needs to keep better track of his coats, you know what I'm saying? It's bad. Um, I, you know, this will be the family devotion for my kids, right? Where's your coat? Um, that's free, parents. That's free. You've got kids under 10. Um, that could be a workbook or something. We could make millions. Um, so anyway, so she goes, and so he gets promptly thrown in jail, right? Now, here, there's something very key to this because because Potiphar is part of the Joint Chiefs, he's the head of the guard. Joseph doesn't get thrown in just any prison. He gets thrown in. He gets thrown. Thrown. That's great. He gets thrown in the prison for political prisoners at the highest level because he's Potiphar's slave, right? Now it says about Joseph when he was in prison. Okay, so now he's not just a slave. He's a slave that's in prison for trying to R.A.P.E. the chief of staff's wife, which probably means he's on something like what we would call death row, okay? And so, but while he's on death row, the Lord is with him. Oh, really? Oh, yes. The Lord is with him and showed him kindness, you know, like getting framed for that. And granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. You see, even though his life was coming apart through circumstances he couldn't control and that he didn't deserve, the text says God was with him. God showed him kindness. He didn't get impaled and killed. Just nobody ever got around to it. And here there he was. And then the prison warden liked him. And then he promoted him. And then he was in charge of the prison, right? The inmate is in charge of the prison. Sounds nice. Sounds smart. But that's— that's what happens when God blesses. Right? That's crazy. That's crazy. You go and you take somebody from the rape ward and you put him in charge of the prison. But th- that's what God did. Right? Okay. So he's in prison and there's these, there are these two guys that get crossways with Pharaoh. One is his cupbearer that brings him his wine and, you know, tastes it, make sure he's not poisoned. And one, of his, one is his baker. So <laughs> apparently there was a cannoli problem and this means bad. So, okay, so the baker and the—they both get thrown in prison. And so um, they have these dreams, but there's no diviners in prison to go see. 
And so they're like, oh, we had these dreams, and there's nobody here to interpret them. And we want to know what they mean because we're in jail. And so Joseph—this is what Joseph says. Um, he says, Joseph said to them, don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. I have experienced the dreams. It didn't go very well last time, but I have experienced the dreams. And so, he, so the guys tell him the dreams. And the, the, the short story is this. The cupbearer tells him his dream, and Joseph says, well, here's what, here's what this means. Um, you're going to live. You're going you're gonna to be put back into Pharaoh's court, and you're going to be his cupbearer. You're going to be restored to where you were. It's going to be great. And it says, the, then the other guy, it says in the Bible, it says, when he saw that the other guy got a favorable response, he offered his dream, right? And, and uh, Joseph says, um, well, you're, your dream means that, that you're going to die. And actually, it's more specific than that. You're actually going to get impaled on a big spike of wood, and birds are going to fly down and eat the flesh off your bones. So when you get out, could you please help me? <laughs> you know? So the cupbearer gets out, and it says that he promptly forgot Joseph for another two years. Two years. The next thing that happens is that Pharaoh has dreams. He has these two dreams. One, he sees these big seven cows, big, chubby, high-fat content, like Kobe beef cows coming up out of the river, and they just look sleek and nice. And he's like, ooh, those are some good-looking cows, right? And then, I mean, it was like 4-H camp. And then right after that, there were these seven, like, really gaunt, like, very skinny, look like they're about to die, emaciated cows. And they come out of the water, and they eat the other cows. Um, I, now, you may not know much about agriculture. I grew up on a beef farm. Generally speaking, cows don't eat cows. <laughs> but this is a dream, and, you know, crazy stuff happens. So they eat the fat cows, and they're not—then they, they're still just as skinny. He's like, they ate the fat cows, and they just—like, they didn't eat a thing. And Joseph's like, well, that's a very interesting dream. Did you use any illicit substances before bed, right? And then, so then he gets the other dream, and it's basically the same dream except with grain. So there's grain, and there's like seven big heads of grain, and then there's these like little terrible heads of grain. They eat the big heads of grain, which also, in case you don't know much, that's not, it's a dream though. Go with it. And then the, these grains are still bad. And Joseph said, this is simple. He says, this is how it goes. So there's seven years. You're going to get seven years of agricultural plenty. The weather's going to be great. Everything you plant's going to grow. It's going to be awesome. And then it's going to be seven years of the worst drought you have ever heard of. And you better find somebody smart and wise to, to store stuff up and to deal with this and to get ready because it's going to be terrible. And, and if you don't find the right person, you're going to be in big trouble. And Pharaoh goes, how about this guy? And so just like that, Joseph is second to Pharaoh in the greatest kingdom the world had ever known, to deal with the greatest humanitarian disaster that was coming that the world had ever known. In about 10 minutes. Right? So, that leads us to episode 4, which is the drought. So, for seven years, they store up 20% of everything. They put it all away. The huge cities, it says that they stored so much that they tried to keep records for a while, and then they were like, we can't keep records of this. There's just too much grain, man. Right? And so they have a lot of grain. And so then, but then— after the seven years, boom, just like he said, it, it turned bad. And after about two years, everybody was starving. And including Israel's family in Canaan, a few hundred miles away. And so his brothers come to see him, and they don't know it's him. And he has this great opportunity because who travels like ten grown men together, right? And so he's like, oh, I got you. I've got you because— He's, he goes, you guys are not here for grain. You're spies. You came here from some other kingdom, and you were checking out Egypt, and you're trying to figure out how you can attack us and steal all our grain. I know what's up. That's the reason why there's 10 of you grown men coming here. Everyone's coming in families, two by two, right? He just nailed it, and they're like, we're not, we're not spies. But it's kind of like, when did you stop beating your wife? I mean, like, yeah, of course you're going to deny it. You're a spy, right? So, so he throws them all in jail, right? And three days later, he lets them out, and he says— on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. Which is kind of an interesting passage. You know, God isn't actually mentioned very many times in this passage, but here he is. And you, you get, kind of get this sense, and it doesn't explain it fully in the passage, but I kind of get the sense that, like, he had had a little conversation with God about throwing his brothers in prison and throwing away the key. 
And so he comes back and he says, listen, I'm going to keep one of you in prison to make sure you come back. I want you to go back and get this brother you told me about, this little brother that was born to Rachel. And I want you to bring him back here. Now, one of the things that, I mean, we don't even have to go any further. Go, how, does, how does that happen? You get sold into slavery by your good-for-nothing brothers. You rot in prison for 13 years. You get out and you're put directly into the lap of luxury so that any character-destroying event that luxury can create, you are exposed to. So you're exposed to soul-destroying deprivation and immediate soul-destroying luxury. And they show up and you can do anything to them completely anonymously. They wouldn't even know it was Joseph that did it. And he lets them go. How does that work? And the text says, I fear God. Joseph believed that there was a God who had blessed him into the position that he was and that he wasn't God, and therefore he simply didn't have the right to revenge. God is God. And he had enough sense and faith and from that character to try to come up with a more constructive plan, which ended up being kind of complicated, but also kind of cool. Which leads us to episode five, because they get home and they tell Jacob the story. Look, we, the, guy, the guy was kind of angry. He kept Simeon in jail, um, but we got some food and they gave us our money back, but they want us to come back with Benjamin and then they'll let Simeon out of prison. And Jacob's like, uh-oh, oh no, you're not taking Benjamin down there. You're not taking the only thing I have left from Rachel down to Egypt to get Simeon out of prison. Remember Simeon? He's the guy who like massacred a village a couple chapters earlier. I'm not making that trade, okay? Simeon knew what he was doing. He's a grown man, right? They're like, okay, dad. So then they eat all the food and then they're out of food. And Jacob's like, look, quit looking around like we're just gonna die. Go down and get some more food. And and they're like, dude, we are not going down there without without Benjamin. You gotta be crazy. He's like, go, just go down there and work it out. He's like, listen, the guy was very clear. He was very clear. Dad, we are not going without Benjamin. So you can choose whether to send him down there or let him starve. It's up to you. And so Jacob says, all right, all right, I guess that's all. So he says, take the boy with you. And so they go down there and they get more food and they let Simeon out of prison. And Joseph has has him over to his house for dinner. Um, It's really good and nice to Benjamin. And then when they pack up everything, he tells his attendants to put the money back in and to take his special like silver cup and put it in Benjamin's bag. And seal it all up for them and put it on their donkeys. So these guys, you'd think they would have checked their bags because the money was in it the last time. But anyway, they get on there and they, they're riding off and they're not, they haven't gone very far and Joseph's policemen show up. And they're like, what are you doing stealing stuff? And they're like, what are you talking about? And so they pull all the bags down and they open up and there's the cup and Benjamin's thing and they're like, oh my gosh. So they take it all back and, and Joseph's like, oh man, whoever stole this is going to be my slave. And they're like, ah! Right? I mean, that's basically that's a little bit of sound effects, but... Um, Hold on, go back. Oh, oh, okay. And so they say, well, wait a second. That's, that's, that. So Judah's like, now we're all going to be your slaves. He's like, no, no, not all of you. Not all of you. Just one of you. Just one person who stole my cup. He'll be my slave. The rest of you can go home. Now, I talked with, I talked with Kim, because I have not read this anywhere. Um, But here's what I think is happening. In fact, Kevin and I were talking about writing like an, an Old Testament academic paper on this. Because um, th- this, is, this is how I understand. This is what I think is going on, okay? I'm not positive, but this is what I think is going on. Joseph is Rachel's son, right? And these guys hated him. And they threw him in a pit and they sold him into slavery, right? Now, it's decently reasonable. Joseph does not know what's happened in the last 20 years or so with his brothers. He doesn't know if they've changed. He doesn't know anything about it. What he knows is, is that Benjamin is in their care, who's his brother, he didn't even know he existed. But this is his brother from his own mother. They share the same parents, right? And so they don't know what, what these guys are going to do with this kid. Throw him in his sister and sell him off to some other traders for all that he knows. Might end up in Iran, right? And so he set up a moral dilemma so that either the brothers step up and protect their little brother like they should, or they leave and he saves Benjamin. It's a moral dilemma, Right? Now, before we talk about what happened, I want to go back and start to kind of theologically apply this story for us, okay? So hopefully you've been able to 
to stick with me so far. Okay. The, the first thing I think that's really important to get from this story is that God has, God's plans are bigger than our lives, yet he, our individual lives matter greatly to him. Here's what I mean by that. Um, the way most people think is that the, the minute any of the stuff that happened in Joseph's life happens in our lives, we get really, really theological. And this is how fake theological we get. Well, if God is maximally loving and he's omnipotent, then bad things wouldn't be happening to me because he would know they're going to happen. He has the power to stop them. And because he's loving, he would. Boom. I shouldn't be suffering. Okay, let me just tell you, that's terrible philosophy. Okay, I'll just tell you straight away. That's terrible philosophy. It assumes that God has no greater love than how you think your life should turn out. It assumes that love is what you say it is, not what God says it is. It has the outcomes that you say they should have rather than the ones that God says they should have, and that you know what love is better than God does. It, it, it presumes a bunch of things. And it presumes loving you is the only thing God is doing in the whole world. That, that you have, you, there's no possibility that you could have any responsibility to be part of the redemption of others that could cost you something, and that that could be your responsibility whether you like it or not. Joseph did not sign up to save the world. He, there was not a line, and he got, oh, save it, save the world. I'll sign up for that, right? Oh, only 13 years in prison. Th that is not what happened. Joseph got picked. He got signed up for it. He didn't want it. It says later, Joseph said, Judah says later, don't you remember when we sold him how he pleaded for his life? Right? So it says he's pleaded for, he's going to be a slave. He got elected into that. Chosen for it. But yet, but yet, as you read this story, it is amazing how kind God is with individual people. He's enormously kind to Joseph. He does not make his suffering for nothing. He and, and Tamar is another great example of this. This is this girl probably would have starved. She probably would have starved in the Great Famine. She had no idea when she was going through two terrible husbands that there was this weird plan in place whereby through some sin she was going to commit with another guy that wasn't very moral, that was going to produce illegitimate twins, and that all that was going to create a situation which she was going to be taken to Pharaoh's court and provided for, in the, for the, during the worst famine of world history. Can you imagine— what she was thinking, nine months into her marriage, marriage to Ur, when he was into whatever he was into? Beating the stuffing out of her, maybe. I don't know what he was doing, but God killed him for it. It was bad. And there she was. No options, no choices. But it turned out— You see, this is why I think a lot of the Bible is in story. True stories but in the form of narratives, because philosophically, this gets real convoluted. And so God says, well, let me just tell you what happens. And then you put it together. Here's what happens. I let this happen, then I did this, and then this happened, then I did this, and then this is what I did, and this was my plan in the end. You, these people could not have seen this, but this is how it turned out. This is what I'm like. Now you apply that to your life, which is basically, we don't know squat— about why things are happening and what's happening. We just have the same choices to make that Judah had and Tamar had and Joseph had. Are you going to believe God is God? Are you going to be faithful? And are you going to say things like, am I in the position of God? How could I do such a wicked thing? You're the only person God has told me I couldn't have. And so how could I sin against God and do that? Or are we going to do things like, well, we can make some money if we sell the twerpy little brother into slavery. Or, 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 or. And this is precisely what Joseph says. And he says it three times. Listen, narratives in the Bible are intentionally short and compact. You've got to read them very carefully. When things come up three times, they're important. They are important. And Joseph says this three times. When he, in, in chapter 45, which I'll get to that in just a minute, when his brothers, he finally reveals himself to his brothers. He says this, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me there. 
Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will not be plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now, you see, this is, this is more than just God let it happen. And I'm not saying we should interpret everything bad that happens to anybody or us in this specific way. I'm not saying that everything that we suffer through, the answer is God intentionally did it for a greater purpose. I'm not saying that's the interpretation of everything. But Joseph now sees, because he's two years into the famine, right? He see, he's far enough where he can look back and see it. So now he looks back and he goes, don't you see? Only God would have done this. He could not have said that 12 years ago. Now he can say it. He said, yeah, you intended it for evil. You sold me into slavery. And yeah, okay, yeah, you're an idiot. Like, you were a jerk. That was terrible. Terrible. Flesh trafficker, okay? But God did it. He didn't just use it for good. Joseph says, at least in this case, God did it. Right? In chapter 50, this is after Jacob dies, because his brothers are persuaded, are, are just convinced in their head that Joseph is just, has just pretended he's forgiven them until their dad dies. And as soon as Jacob dies, they're dead. And this is how Genesis ends, with them going, please don't kill us, basically, right? And his brothers came in and threw themselves down before him. We're your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Um, think about this. If, if Jesus is who Jesus is, let's, let's just stipulate for a minute the Bible's true, okay? Just for a second. If you don't already believe that. If what you do has eternal consequences, if every human being you meet is an eternal creature, and if what you do to and with and for them matters eternally, how much good actually has to be accomplished for an enormous amount of suffering in your life to be worth it? If you suffer your whole life, literally your whole life, to be a little part of the redemption of one person— who then exists eternally with God forever. And you didn't even leave them in Christ. It was just a little piece. You just, a little, you invited them to something, they met somebody, and then blah, 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 blah. Is that worth it? You see, rationally, it is. Now, now, in terms of our emotion, how we feel, and our suffering through it, and how hard it is day to day, and how broken we are, and how much encouragement we need, absolutely, I understand that. I understand suffering. It's, it's, hard, it's hard. I understand that to a certain extent. Maybe not as much as you. You're suffering. I may not have suffered that much, but I understand the idea that co the cognition of it isn't the same as the feeling of it. I understand that. But just think with me rationally for a minute. Is it worth it? And the answer is Yes. If Jesus is who he said he is, and if he is using us to accomplish redemption, and if that redemption is eternal, it is. Okay? That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians, when he's getting beat half to death and thrown in prison and in shipwrecks and blah, 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 this is why he can refer to his concert. He says, I die every single day. It feels like I'm dying. But then you know what he says in that same book? He says— I don't count my light and momentary trials to be worth talking about in light of the eternal glory for which they are being used. Do you see his perspective there? And I think that the story of Joseph tells us the exact same thing. The second thing is, is that God delivers a cosmic plan through utterly obscure and even scandalous people. I mean, think about this. This is the line of redemption. And these people are crazy. Okay? But not just that. They're obscure. I mean, these are like shepherds in Mesopotamia. They're nobodies. Right? 
I mean, who is a big deal in the story? You've got Tamar. She's like some daughter of some Canaanite sheik or something. I mean, we don't even know. For all that we know, she grew up in squalor. And Judah's, I mean, we don't have any idea who she is, right? Um, Judah is like the youngest son of the wife that isn't loved, you know. I mean, and, then, and then Joseph is like the annoying younger brother that they tried to kill a bunch of times and just wouldn't die, right? I mean, he— I mean, he's just this guy who was a slave, prisoner, youngest son, no inheritance. And yet, these people become how God redeems the cosmos. Which means, um, I don't think you can be used in God's purposes like he's meant for you to be used until you realize that you are worthless in terms of obscurity. You're nobody. And you're scandalous. There's no reason God would use you morally. Until, I mean, I I think every person who's a Christian has to get there. You and I, we have to believe that if we're going to be used by God. We've got to believe that we're nobodies, and we've got to believe that we're, we're not morally good that God would use us. Think about how Jesus is referred to 700 years before his birth in Isaiah 53. It says about the Messiah— He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. You see, one of the things to recognize is the God who created stars, which are the flashiest things in creation, chose to be not flashy in how he redeemed everyone. Does that make sense? He chose—I mean, I take that passage to mean that Jesus was not naturally slick and not handsome. I I suspect Jesus was mildly unattractive. I bet he was about that tall, given the nutrition of the time. Um, He probably wasn't even left-handed, you know? And, and, I mean, he's just a normal guy. And I don't don't think he was slick. I just think he had no external majesty. He only had internal majesty. And that was God's plan. And then later on, if you remember this, if you were here last year, we went through 1 Corinthians. Remember the Corinthians, they, they wanted to be flashy. They wanted to be thought wise and cool and, and, and be up with the Greek learning and like be thought of as important. And what did Paul say to them? Well, the first thing he had to say is, you guys are a bunch of arrogant jerks. Listen, go back to the gospel. Think through the gospel. He says this, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. That is, called into faith in Jesus. What were you? Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. And not many were of noble birth. But God chose. You were called. And the dynamic of using non-flashy people and obscure and scandalous people is what God chose. He chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose for his people to have one abiding quality. Humility. So that he could be glorious. And that's the reason he gives. Why did he do that? He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Right? And then, and this is a little more theologically complicated, and I got to go back to the story for a couple minutes for this. But that is, what, what can we know about how, what the dynamic of salvation, how God saves? And one of the things this passage teaches really clearly is that God saves through substitution and imputation. That is, that there is a sacrifice of one who reconciles and redeems many. Now, you might be wondering where on earth I'm getting this from this passage, and that's okay, that's cool. Um, and this passage. Um, ha- this, pa- this story has in it what I call the Braveheart effect. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Braveheart, but um, that's a film that has a main character, and he's not really the main character, right? Um, William Wallace is the main character, but there's this other character where all the transformation happens. He's really the main dramatic character, Robert the Bruce. This story is very similar like that. Joseph's the main main character, but there, the, the transformation, the change, there's another main character dramatically, and it's Judah. He starts off being the fourth child of his wife who's constantly trying to earn her husband's favor. And the first three sons are, I finally beat her—the names mean, I finally beat my sister. I'm going to win. Surely my husband will love me now. She finally gets to the fourth one. She just goes, you know what, this time I'm just going to praise God. Judah means 
he praises, right? And then he's, he's the one who thinks slavery is a great idea. But then he has that incident with Tamar. And he realizes what he really is. He realizes that his sons died because they were wicked men, not because Tamar was something. He realized that, that he was evil because he'd just as soon let her die destitute than give her the son that he was supposed to give her. And it does something in him. When the whole prostitute thing goes down, he realizes something about himself. And then later on, it says that when Jacob goes to Egypt, all of his offspring go, including Perez and Zerah, the twins born to Tamar, because Judah takes care of them. And when it finally came time for them to go back the second time, and because they're all— no, no, none of the other brothers came up with a solution. Jacob was like, look, you're not taking Benjamin. And they're like, look, we got to take Benjamin. And there was no solution. And Judah finally jumps in. He says, send the boy along with me. Not all ten. Send him with me. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. Kind of echoes something, doesn't it, from another time? But the key moment, the moment that breaks open redemption for the whole thing, is when they all get dragged back in front of Joseph that second time. And Benjamin is the one with a cup, and he's going to become their slave. And they're going to be sent home, and Joseph creates this moral dilemma, and it's the climax of the whole story. And what's going to happen? And what, here's what happens. Judah says, take me instead. Don't take Benjamin. My father will die. Take me instead, Right? He says, what can we now say to my Lord? Judah replied, what can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered our, your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves. And then Joseph says, no, only the man that was found to have the cup. You guys can go back to your father in peace. You see what he's doing? Your servant's father said to us, you know that my wife only bore me two sons, and one of them went away from me. He said, and surely he's been torn to pieces. He's referring to Joseph, right? And I have not seen him since— if you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when we go back to your servant, my father, my, my, your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, that's Benjamin, he sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Now then, please, let your servant, meaning me, Judah, let me remain here as your slave in place of the boy, and let him return back with his father. Think of that. He had every reason to believe Joseph was dead. They had no idea who he was. Right? And th that's the moment where Joseph starts to weep again in front of them. And he says, it's me. It's me. Because somebody's changed. The family can come back together. And this is why it's important to understand that right here you see sacrifice, substitution, and imputation. Here's what I mean by that. So the substitution is clear, right? Judah for Benjamin. But what did that produce? It didn't just—it didn't buy back Benjamin. It produced reconciliation for the whole family. And you see, his other brothers weren't good. They didn't speak up. They didn't do a thing. For all that we know, they haven't changed at all. But you see, when Judah substituted himself for Benjamin, he purchased reconciliation for the whole clan, for all the brothers. And when Judah was received back and reconciled to his brother Joseph, when that happened, and the three, Benjamin and Judah and Joseph, were all reconciled together, it reconciled the rest of the family. And he, when he revealed himself, he didn't reveal himself just to Judah. He revealed himself to all the brothers. He said, all of you go back and get my father. And all of you come back and live in the land of Goshen. And I will provide for all of you and for all of our people. That's imputation. That's what imputation means. It means somebody else gets to benefit from something somebody else purchases that they have no right to. And you see, that's the dynamic of the gospel. What we need, the scriptures say, before God is righteousness that we don't have. And Jesus purchased in his death a righteousness that we have no intrinsic right to. It doesn't get applied to us through some moral means. It's not a wage. We don't earn it. Our access to it is through imputation. Because of Christ, we are brought in just like the brothers are brought in. 
We benefit from that which we didn't purchase, we don't own, we don't have any right to, but that's freely given to us in the transaction of the sacrifice. Now, now you might be thinking, okay, Nick, that's, that's, that's a cute little interpretation, but what evidence is there that this is what the text really means? I mean, aren't you just kind of allegorizing? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. When I basically argue that Judah is the true and greater Jesus because he substitutes himself and reconciles and redeems, that's actually kind of in the text. Because at the end of Jacob's life, remember I said before when Chet was going to speak, that at the end of his life, Jacob blesses all of his sons. And you would expect some of them to get kind of bad blessings, and most of them actually do. But you would expect Joseph to get the great blessing. And at one level he does. He gets a wonderful, wonderful blessing. But the greatest blessing actually is given to Judah. Listen to it. So this is, this is Israel, Jacob, blessing his sons. Judah, your brothers will praise you, right? Judah means praise, right? That's a little cheeky pun, right? Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's sons will bow down to you. Think about that. Think about that. Not in his lifetime they won't. But in the line of Judah, all of the other brothers would bow down to him. So in one sense, what was the final fulfillment of, J- of Joseph's dream? The first fulfillment was when they bowed down to him because he was Pharaoh's right-hand man. But there is a greater fulfillment of that dream. But they wouldn't bow down to Joseph. They bowed down to Judah. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse her? The scepter, that is, the rule of rulership, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Now think about it. Judah will rule until one, a he, to whom the scepter finally belongs, and it is given to him. Now, the line of Judah, the line of Judah has failed. It doesn't exist today. But it did exist in the line of David, who was rooted in Bethlehem, where one to whom the scepter came was born. Jesus. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there are some obscure people. There's only four women mentioned in the line of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Only three women mentioned by name. In verse 3, Tamar is mentioned. They want to make sure that you know that the line of Judah didn't come through Selah. No, 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 no. It came through the semi-incestuous father-in-law, daughter-in-law, prostitution thingy that produced Perez. And the line of Christ goes through him. See, I always thought, when I was a kid, before I, I always thought, surely it went through Joseph. I knew the line went through Abraham. I knew it went through Isaac. I knew it went through Jacob. I knew it went through one of Jacob's. I just assumed it was Joseph. There's 12 chapters on him. Surely it goes through him. No, no. It goes through Judah, the guy who sold him into slavery. And it goes through the son of the daughter-in-law. Right? God works with nobodies. Tamar, that we know about, Rahab the prostitute, and Ruth, who's a very godly woman, but a Moabitess, foreigner, nobody widow. Just wanted to make sure you knew that. And the one woman who was basically pulled up into royalty, Bathsheba, her name, she is not mentioned by name. It simply says, Solomon was born to the woman who was Uriah's wife. Which most Bible commentators believe that's a pejorative. They didn't want to honor Bathsheba. They just wanted to note that for the Old Testament text. But these three women, they wanted to honor. Interesting, right? And then there's this great passage in Revelation. Because there's this place where John is like seeing the Revelation. And he, he sees this scroll. And it has seven seals on it. And there's writing on both sides of it. And it has bound up into it the final, the, the, the word that is the expression of the final triumph of God. It's like, this is what God is going to do. This is how he will finally bring an end to everything and finally triumph over all that stands against him. But nobody was allowed to open it. <clears throat> had these seven seals. And so it says, he says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, <coughs> do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Are you tracking it? Judah, the one who sacrifices himself to purchase reconciliation for all and imputes reconciliation to all, becomes the line of imputation and reconciliation through sacrifice 
ultimately to the one who would hold the scepter of rulership, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, who would bring all nations to obedience to God. How did they know that? We're talking about 3,000 years. How did they know that? And so what that lays before us is all those dynamics are still true. The object of our faith is just different. The object is the one who is the line of Judah, the lamb that has risen, Jesus, the one who has sacrificed himself, the one who has put himself in his place so that we could receive righteousness and reconciliation with God. And the condition of that is not earning it somehow. It's through imputation. It's just given freely. So how do you access it? But simply by receiving it. We call that in Christian, in the Christian religion, faith. That's why it's called, it isn't called the Christian religion. It's called the Christian faith. Because you receive it. And I want to encourage you to receive it. If you haven't, you, I want to encourage you to receive it. Jesus is King and Lord. He died for you. Receive it. Um, if you are still trying to earn your way to God, you're still trying to perform your way to His, and you just don't have the peace, because you're trying— Listen, His approval of you is imputed. Listen, you might not like that word. You're like, Nick, why do you got to use words like imputed? Because it will purchase peace for your soul, that's why. Your peace of mind, of heart, of life, of thought is bound up with that word, the imputation of Christ's righteousness— that frees you from ever earning it, frees you from ever having to take it by force. It's just yours. You just get it by faith. It's, it's just generosity. God just gives it. You just take it. We call that grace. Call it grace. It's grace. You just get it. And you should take it, especially if you're a Christian already. Why not believe the gospel if you're already a Christian? Might be good for you. Right? And believe that because the plan is bigger than your life, you may, be going through, you may be going through a pile of horse manure, and you may have been going through it for decades. And I want to encourage you that look to Joseph. Look to how he understood that. And look to the possibility that if you turn in on yourself, there's no guarantee that you will live out the purpose in your suffering. You have to look to that. You need the attitude of Joseph, attitude of faith that God can bring good out of this. Otherwise, all you'll—what a tragedy if all you do is suffer. God may produce suffering for an intended good purpose, and you may decide because you're so angry at him, all all you'll do is suffer. Now that's not worth it. If I'm going to go through stuff and I don't get to sign up for it or not, I am not wasting it. I want to use whatever suffering I go through to the maximal— eternal good. Because if I don't get to decide how much suffering I go through, then I want to get out of it all I can. I hope you do too. And you can if you will simply admit to yourself that you are nothing but obscure and morally useless. And that that is exactly the kind of person God has always used to save nations and through whom he brings salvation to the cosmos and to all nations. That is who you are. That is your purposed destiny. And you can receive it by believing it. I hope you will. While I pray. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for the patience um, of these folks. I hope that you'll use what I've said to encourage them and strengthen them. And I pray, Father, right now people would be retrusting you or trusting you for the first time. Pray that they would be putting their, their hope in you, that they'd be encouraged by what you've said about yourself, how clearly you've revealed your character and how you save and what you do in the life of Joseph and Judah and Tamar and all these characters. And I pray that it would give us strength and grit and humility and that that would produce peace. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand and try to respond um, singing together.